Today's episode is presented by IBM. IBM's Watson X Governance helps organizations manage their AI responsibly at enterprise scale and prepare for AI regulations coming worldwide. Learn more at ibm.com governance. I appreciate your willingness to hear answers to truly important questions. When will the war end? Is the sword world war possible? Is it time to negotiate with Putin? Our fundamental view is that international economic policy needs to be about solving the problems of today, not the problems of 50 years ago. If we do not make progress, we will continue to have this group thinking that doesn't work. The issue is, and the world has to face it point blank, with no ifs and buts, there is an empire of evil emanating from Tehran. Over-reliance on one company, one country, one trade route comes with risks. As the World Economic Forum winds down here in the Swiss Alps, many people are asking themselves, did the conversations happening here really move mountains? My producer made me say that. It's a week dominated by discussions about the growing power of AI and how businesses are grappling with technological advances against an uncertain geopolitical backdrop. That's on the minds of government leaders too, not only concerned about economic jitters, but the uncertainty brought by millions of people going to the polls around the world this year. The aim of the annual Davos gathering is to set the agenda for what lies ahead. So, if that's the case, what might we expect in 2024? Our Politico team have been scouring the gathering for new insights. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where we talk to some of the most influential people on either side of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and today we've assembled part of the Politico Brains Trust, who've been shuffling around the mountain this week, meeting with government officials, CEOs, leaders and activists. Let's welcome back Suzanne Lynch, author of our global playbook, Nahal Tuzi, Politico's senior foreign affairs correspondent, and Alex Ward, our national security reporter out of Washington. I have reconvened the stellar power panel, who started this week looking a little bit fresher, I have to say. Is that right, Suzanne Lynch? Yes, Anne. So I have to say, I am kind of feeling it. We're nearly at the end, uh, but it's been quite a week trying to balance these uh, panels, discussion speeches, all the activities on the promenade. And then, of course, those late night uh, parties we've been trying to get into successfully, I have to say. So it's been, uh, you know, interesting, busy, but pretty uh, intense week. Well, look, no, we did have some good scoops this week. I mean, Alex, one of the big themes, I think, and this week, you know, was Zelensky, the geopolitical context. We talked about this earlier in the week. We were chasing this story all week about this proposed meeting between Zelensky and the Chinese. It's a it's a big geopolitical concern at the moment. Between us all, we were working on this uh, and we did report. Uh, we got that story that China effectively snubbed Zelensky. Yes, it was pretty clear that the... Ukrainians really wanted some sort of a meeting with the Chinese, either directly or in this peace forum that they held. But the Chinese just did not seem to be interested. And obviously, this has to do with China's relationship with Russia. Uh, They've backed Russia throughout this war. 
and trying to have this kind of open meeting or, or even a private one with Ukraine risked bringing up a lot of sore points with Moscow. So that was part of it. I also was told that there was a sense that the Chinese also wanted to focus uh, a lot on the relationship with Switzerland, keeping it kind of economically focused. Uh, they also didn't meet with the U.S. either, it's worth noting. So uh, they were on a mission and they stuck to it. Interesting, Alex, how this Davos has taken place among what might pompously be called the changing global backdrop or shifting geopolitical currents, which are just slightly highfalutin Davosy ways of saying like, there's a lot going on and how is this going to affect interrelations between countries and particularly the defence, the security, the, the big picture implications. Do you feel any wiser about that leaving here than when you arrived? No, because things have gotten worse since we got here. Uh, I mean, we have Iran and Pakistan shooting each other, <laughs> uh, bombing each other. Uh, there's no sense, even after this peace forum here in Davos, that there's a pathway to that war ending or changing anytime soon. We've had the Biden administration through Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, double down on their Israel-Hamas strategy, which is effectively well, okay, if we just still normalize relations within the Middle East, then eventually things will kind of work out. And also Gaza needs more humanitarian aid. So, you know, it's been nice up here. The weather's been fine. You know, it's a lovely setting, but the world's gotten uglier since we've been in this beautiful place. Yeah, I mean, the Iranian foreign minister was here. That was a big moment. I bumped into Alex actually outside his speech and both of us were trying to get in and both of us failed. Um, you were saying that media... Where our media badges we weren't allowed in, but it did seem to be a packed hall there. And actually, I did have that moment, which you get all the time at Davos, where I'd just seen David Cameron walk by with his posse. And just about 10 seconds later, the Iranian foreign minister walked by. So they did not have that kind of potentially awkward uh, meeting. Uh, the Iranians stuck to themselves, uh, but were very defiant in their message in that speech, criticising Israel, really, and saying they needed to stop this offensive. Well, that's true, Suzanne, but there's also the meetings, if you like, that we're not really expected to see or to cover. And one of the things that Christina Gonzalez, a producer on this podcast, and I noticed when we went in to interview David Cameron himself for Power Play yesterday, still available on all your podcast apps, was the Iranian delegation were coming out and he'd had meetings both with the Iranians, which he was uh, happy enough to confirm, and uh, with the Saudis. And all of this is happening in relatively modest departments sometimes. They're not always happening in the Congress Centre or anywhere where they hope that they bump into you three and have to talk about it. Well, this is it. No one wants to be seen, you know, the handshake publicly, the fist bump publicly. As you say, these meetings go on behind the scenes. And, and as you said, and when we get to interview these figures, we do get into certain bits of the Congress Centre that you don't usually get access to. I did an interview yesterday and I was watching all these leaders with the Australian Open playing on the on the TV <laughs> At the side now, not to say they weren't working hard, they were, but um, but yeah, you were absolutely right. I mean, this is the point of Davos. These backroom meetings that can happen privately, that can happen behind closed doors, and that don't necessitate kind of a big diplomatic planned meeting where somebody has to fly to another country to meet an adversary, essentially. Uh, 
so I think that is one of, of the points uh, of Davos. And of course, the other uh, part of this was, as we were reporting this week, was that one of Zelensky's aims, of course, was to meet big business, to meet the Wall Street executives, to try and drum up support for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And we know he did meet a lot of the CEOs, people like Jamie Dimon, people like Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Um, that was a big focus of him this week, to get in front of those executives. And as you said there, Anna, they were the kind of meetings that were also happening in these quiet rooms. Events in Iowa definitely set up the week. And I think a lot of the political conversation, Holly, at the beginning of the week was, well, now Donald Trump, you know, it's undeniable. He's really on the way back even prospectively, the candidate. How do you think that affects the conversation here? And did you find people very keen to talk about it? I was surprised by how many people were willing to talk about it, at least privately. And these are business people. And for a lot of them, it's about business, right? And so when they look at a potential Trump win, they also wonder about all the ripple effects on their work and what they're planning. Now, I have some people saying, look, I don't think we've quite priced in how a Trump win could affect the markets. I think there's still a lot of a sense that that's still in November. A lot could happen. It's too early to predict. But there are people who raise questions about things like a potential Trump win and how that would affect the Inflation Reduction Act, because he's promised to gut it. That means that if you're a business trying to strike a long-term agreement with another company that is a result of this legislation that invests in green energy in the United States, then you're wondering, should we really do that right now? Or should we wait to find out if Trump is going to take office? And so there's these questions out there that uh, a lot of people are asking at this forum that are about business and the future, not to mention the fact that there's a lot of other elections happening around the world this year. And that's also affecting the decision making. Yeah, I guess just to put a point on it, literally every single thing happening here at Davos has a Trump-sized asterisk next to it. This entire forum is about as anti-nationalist as it can get. And he would be the paragon of nationalism coming back and changing everything that Davos people want to do. Now, to Holly's point, the business community is sort of watching. They remember that the stock market in America did fine when Trump was president. It went up in many ways. And of course, now you already have top business folks saying semi-nice things about Trump in advance in case he comes back, because we all know that's the coin of the realm with Trump, whether or not you say something nice. So every time I see a panel that's like, you know, climate and the future of AI or, you know, inflation reduction and soil manufacturing or whatever, like none of it matters. And not in general, it doesn't matter, but none of it matters because this is not what Trump wants. This is the antithesis of what Trump wants. I'll say there's one big exception I heard to that over and over again, which was there is a belief that when it comes to renewable energy, that the economic logic has gone past the partisan extremes. There is a sense that even if you're conservative or red state or whatever, that the price of renewables has fallen to the point where even a Trump won't be able to really stop the march of renewable energy. And also the investment in red states, let's not forget. I was at a dinner last night, which was quite kind of CEO heavy, and particularly in the, the energy sector. And, and this question obviously came up, what about Donald Trump? I think there was a general backdrop feeling that this would not be the best option. But would there maybe be a sort of Trump-style IRA that would be rather different from the Biden one? Uh, he's looking slightly sceptically at me here. But I thought it was an interesting 
argument that Trump would not so much gut the IRA as say, I will take the bits that I think power forward the American economy, and then we could leave off some of the green rubbish, as he would see it. And I thought that was an interesting idea. But, you know, his track record on that is very mixed. I mean, people thought that he could maybe just put his name on the Iran nuclear deal and make it the Trump-Iran nuclear deal and that that would be fine with him. He did not do that. Uh, There are other examples of where he just wants to reverse the things that his opponents did. It's not just about putting his name on them. So I would not bank on that with Trump. Who do you and your reality checks? <laughs> I mean, listening to this conversation, one thing that struck me, and I was writing about this in Thursday's Davos Playbook, was there has not been that much discussion about climate compared to other years. I mean, we've talked about AI being very dominant. We've talked about the geopolitics. And I was at a breakfast this morning with senior banking officials and really... I think it has become a bit political. I mean, this investment to ESG, some people, a charitable explanation is that some people said, well, we dealt with this at COP and we made progress, so let's not focus on it now. But a lot of companies don't want to have that conversation. They're worried about getting dragged into the politics of this, particularly in the US, when you've got like Ron DeSantis in Florida have one strong ideas about this. And then in other states like New York, it's very, very different. So I think the absence of climate, we haven't seen the the scale of demonstrations we've seen in in previous years. It's been a bit peripheral. So what that means, I don't know. But I do think maybe it is part of this holding pattern until people see what comes later in the year politically. Maybe I'm not in all the rooms that you guys are, but I felt sort of an absence of everything. Like there's AI domination, but... And Zelensky was here and the Iranian foreign minister was here and the Israeli president was here. The wars have sort of been on the sidelines. It's like we're somehow in this weird space where there aren't people getting, you know, bombed right now. It's odd. And I get that it's in the backdrop and I get that, you know, they have it on the main stage and I get that it's affecting things. But when you do have two pretty major wars happening, we haven't even talked about some of the ones that are happening in Africa at this point. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we have Iran and Pakistan bombing each other, or rather targets there. Like, it's just weirdly not as top of mind. Everyone's thinking about, okay, well, what's ahead? Not only necessarily just in the near or medium term, but long term. It's, it's, it feels weird to me, and maybe I'm just not in the right spots, but it's, it's been it's the biggest gap for me. Wool, a little bit woolly. It, naive, honestly. Well, guys, I mean, this is the World Economic yeah. Forum. Yeah. This is not the World National Security Forum. Like, it would be if Alex had his way there, wouldn't it? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, it's the World Economic Forum, but it has been the world's convening place for all the world's problems forever. Like, I think it's a dodge to say it's just... this is the wrong convening place then, because I don't know that these are the guys... Yeah, I mean, mean, there was a lot of business themes this week. You know, you've got these senior bankers here. So the whole inflation outlook now that people think people were too optimistic about interest rate cuts. We've had a lot of statements from senior bankers. We've had Christine Lagarde here from the ECB. So people have been watching, the markets have been watching their sentiments, their statements at the beginning of this year as we head into it. The the US stock market is coming out of a really strong rally at the end of 2023. And I was hearing lots of people saying some of the economic predictions that they made last year, of course, didn't happen this year. Um, So yeah, I do agree. I mean, a lot of these bankers and senior, senior finance people are actually very low profile. They're also holding a lot of meetings with um, prime ministers and governments about investment, about foreign direct investment. You know, we we mentioned already, India has a huge presence of businesses. These are all the kinds of conversations that are happening. It's about countries showing that they're open for business, trying to get this investment in, and this is the best place to do that. 
Let's take a short pause for some mountain air and we'll return to our discussion right after this. A message from IBM. AI has the power to automate, but if it's using untrusted data, can you trust the results? Your business doesn't just need AI, it needs the right trusted AI for your business. Introducing Watson X, a platform designed to multiply output by tailoring AI to your needs. When you Watson X your business, you can train, tune, and deploy AI, all with your trusted data. Let's create trusted AI for business with Watson X. Learn more at ibm.com slash Watson X. IBM, let's create. I think the interesting mini quarrel there between Alex and Hallie about what is the World Economic Forum fist bump, um, I think that sort of gets to a point about Davos. And I, I want to take this a little bit as the, the final round, which is, yes, it's the World Economic Forum, but there was a long period when economic development and geopolitics, you know, there were wars and there were problems here and there, but you could see a forward direction where the two went hand in hand and they feel now much more separate and often in conflict with each other. And I think that is something that perhaps explains why people see this place very differently. And our editor-in-chief, John Harris, has written a very on point and also very amusing, but I think it is intended to be a sort of pointed reminder to the World Economic Forum and all of us who take part in it, that, as he puts it, nothing very dumb is said here, or at least not so often, but nothing markedly clever or insightful either. So I thought we'd take the John Harris challenge around the table. Have you heard anything, if it's a comment, an argument, an insight that did actually make you think, you know, I'll take that down the mountain with me. I wouldn't have known if if I hadn't been here. I was really impressed with the Norwegian development minister on BS Tivenrim. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name right. And we were talking about elections in the coming year and what that means for stability. And she was just saying how worried she is because there's so many elections. She said, I'm very nervous. And she said, one of the things that's nerve-wracking about it is there's just these ongoing campaigns. And because of all the campaigns and the extremist rhetoric and that major, really important decisions on regulations, things that she has to think about, development, aren't being made because politicians are too afraid to make difficult decisions. And so she just says a lot of things that need to happen are not going to happen in the coming year because of the campaigning alone. And I was really struck by her being willing to go on the record to talk about that as a government leader. Yeah, I mean, to pick up both your points, actually, Anne used the word woolly, and it's a great one because um, I was talking to a CEO of a bank and they made the point they were very disappointed at this series of Davos because on this issue of the Trump return, they were saying that they didn't really hear anything that insightful about what people thought of what that might mean. You know, it was all the speculation about elections and democracy. But actually, elections are part of democracy. That's the world we're in. They hold politicians accountable. They hold their governments accountable. And that's a good thing. So, you know, we're all in danger of kind of going around in circles going, oh, there's lots of elections, lots of elections. You know, that's a good thing. So rather than come out with well, what does that mean, we're not really any further. And it's not only the US, obviously India, you know, we've, we've been through all the countries that are having elections. But, you know, that's life. That's the political system. And that's a good thing. And I think this CEO was making the point that we need to basically respect that. Two quick things come to mind. The first is that my main charge here was to follow the uh, U.S. government officials and the congressional delegation, which is pretty small and did not stay long. 
Um, so because of that, I didn't get to hear much from them. But one thing that stuck out with me is uh, Representative Juan Vargas from California. He, and he's a very left-leaning politician in America. He came, in his words, solely to talk to companies about ESG, right, investments in environmental social governance programs. And he said in every single meeting that they had, all the leading business folks were like, oh, we're already doing that. No big deal. Like, that's baked into what we do. And he just went, oh. All right. Um, so he, he still thought it was a fruitful trip, but he was sort of surprised at what something he thought he'd have to be pushing on some doors. He was like, oh, that's already sort of taken care of. So that's on the American side. The thing that I'm going to take away with me, um, even though I know I've been harping on the wars, um, but is I was struck in a weird way. The hero of Davos has been Argentina's new president, Javier Malay, who showed up and was basically saying like, hey capitalism's awesome. Like, just keep doing this, guys. Like, just kind of do what you do because, because like all this business stuff, just make products that are great. Like, who cares about all that other stuff? Just be good business people. And it was kind of wild to see him be sort of the id of the World Economic Forum and what it is sort of at its essence. And so that's what I'm taking away is that like, there's no one more representative of what this conference is at its core that I saw than the Argentina's new president. And I will pitch in from a dinner on AI, one of the many, but I thought this was a rather good one. There was lots of expertise about large language models, which left me behind a bit by the mozzarella. But we went round the table and, and asked people who deal with AI a lot what they were using it for. And to the best answers for me, it was a, a major AI entrepreneur who uses it. He sacked his asset manager. And he's having all his finances and financial planning, including his estate, which I gather to be quite significant, to pass on to his children to have all his financial decisions made by AI. So I thought that, but I suspect that that is a coming thing. I did come away thinking the, the amount of sort of inputs and information that can be processed there. Big threat to asset managers' jobs. And the man next to me said, yeah, you know all this stuff about, you know, your AI girlfriend or boyfriend. He said, for real, you know, I have a friend who has developed his beloved avatar so far that his primary, shall we put it politely, romantic relationship is with his AI avatar. That'll make Siri very jealous. Well, I sincerely hope not. <laughs> Thanks to my brilliant panel for overcoming that slightly jaded end of the week Davos feeling and joining me around the table. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here as always. We hope you've enjoyed all of our episodes from Davos. If you missed any of them, from Anthony Scaramucci on why he's betting on a Joe Biden win, to David Cameron on dealing with the Houthi rebel attacks, you can find our back catalogue of episodes on all major podcast apps by searching for Powerplay from Politico. And while you're at it, we'd be hugely grateful if you follow us and even leave us a review. The Powerplay team hard at work this week in the Alps has been Christina Gonzalez, executive producer for audio, and Peter Snowden, senior producer in London. I'm Anne McElvoy. See you next week. A message from IBM. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, or generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance.